Mark Zuckerberg's other major before he dropped out of Harvard was psychology. He majored in computer science and psychology. He knows what makes people tick and what makes them click better than the customers understand themselves. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Today we have the best-selling author of the book, Hooked. His name is Nir Ayal. Nir, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for being here. So I know you have a lot of different stuff going on right now. So why don't you first off tell us a little bit about kind of who you are and what your story is? Sure. Uh, So let's see. Uh, I started my career, I guess, in the tech industry with a solar business, then sold that one and went to business school. And then after that, started in the gaming and advertising space. And uh, that company was also acquired. And at the intersection of gaming and advertising, I, I learned a hell of a lot about how to manipulate people, so to speak. And I don't say manipulation necessarily as a bad term, even though a lot of people have a, that, that word has a negative connotation. I think there's two types of manipulation. There's persuasion and there's coercion. Persuasion is helping people do things they want to do, and coercion is helping people do things they don't want to do. Uh, coercion is clearly unethical. Persuasion, I think, is not only ethical, it should be encouraged, right? I think that's the the amazing uh, power of technology is that it helps people do things they want to do. In my last industry of gaming and advertising, I learned both. (laughs) And so I had this vantage point of watching my clients and other people in the industry use both persuasive and coercive tactics. Thankfully, I didn't have to do anything coercive to my, my users, but I learned how other companies did. And I wanted to codify what I'd learned into some kind of workbook that people can use as they're building their their, their businesses. That um, uh, there's a lot of psychology that goes into many of the products we use, particularly the ones we use habitually. So when you think about products like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Snapchat and Slack, all of these companies, the reason we check them hundreds, if not thousands of times per day, that's not an accident, that's by design. And so what I really wanted to, to dive into is to help explain how these companies do it so that all sorts of businesses, not just the social networks and the gaming companies, uh, all sorts of companies can use the same basic psychology to help bring good habits to their customers' lives. I know that you talk about having habit-forming products. So what are some examples of of modern-day kind of habit-forming products? Yeah, so many of those companies I I just mentioned, I think, are kind of the the masters when it comes to this. When you think about uh, Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp or Slack, Snapchat, I think uh, many of these companies, not just in the in the consumer web space, even though I mentioned many of consumer web companies because that's what people are familiar with, I think in the enterprise space as well, when you think about companies like Salesforce uh, or GitHub or uh, um, uh, Stack Overflow, I think there's many companies that are able to serve both enterprise and consumer web uh, audiences uh, by building habits. Uh, and it's not that every business has to be habit-forming. I just want to be clear that plenty of businesses – can can uh, can bring people back with other ways, right? They can use advertising. They can use search engine optimization. They can 
have a physical storefront, right? Can, you can open up a store on the street and bring people back. Um, but those companies tend to be open to uh, severe competition, whereas when you build a customer habit, it, it gives you what I call a monopoly of the mind. When you build a habit with somebody's uh, day-to-day in, in somebody's day-to-day life, they're using your product with little or no conscious thought, right? They turn to you without even considering if the competition is better. So when you think about companies like Google, it's a great example. You know, Bing has been fighting tooth and nail to try and get people to to use their search engine instead of instead of Google, and it's 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 been to date a losing battle because Google has this incredibly strong habit even though the product is not better. I hate to tell this to folks, but you know, there's been third-party studies that show head-to-head comparisons of Google versus Bing, and people can't tell the difference between the search results if you strip out the branding. So uh, it's literally a 50-50 preference split. So th- this illustrates a really good point, that there is no rule, there is no 11th commandment that says the best product wins. That's a big fat lie. It's not the best product that wins. It's the product that becomes first to mind. It's the thing that we turn to with little or no conscious thought that's the product that captures the market. All right, and then I think there's, I think you talk about four triggers as well. Can you explain what those four triggers are and how this relates to building habit-forming products? Well, the, 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 there's one trigger phase. Uh, there's four phases in the hook. Uh, the hook has these four parts of a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. And when you look at any of these products I've just mis- described, as well as many other habit-forming products, you always find the same basic pattern. Trigger, action, reward, investment. Trigger, action, reward, investment. These four steps are what change people's preferences, they create tastes, and they form habits. Every product, every habit-forming product starts with a trigger, either an external trigger, which is something that tells you what to do next, call to action, uh, click here, buy now, play this. Then the action is some simple behavior that gives you a reward. Then the variable reward is something that scratches your itch, that gives you what they came for, but leaves you wanting more, right? Some kind of variability, some kind of mystery, some type of intermittent reinforcement that keeps you guessing about what you might find the next time you use the product. And then finally, the investment is some piece of work that you do for a future reward, that makes the product better with time. Something that the more you use it, data, content, followers, reputation, something that the more you use the product, the better it becomes, and loads the next trigger. So when I send someone a message, for example, on WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever, that that process of sending someone a message, that investment of sending someone a message, loads the next trigger because I'm likely to get an external trigger in the future as a reply, which prompts me through the hook once again. So that eventually, through successive cycles through these hooks, eventually I don't even need those external triggers at all. I don't need spammy messages. I don't need expensive marketing thrown at me because I begin to form an association with what's called an internal trigger. And the internal trigger replaces the external trigger when people form associations with feelings and your product. When I'm bored, I check Facebook. When I'm, I'm sorry, when I'm bored, I check YouTube. When I'm lonely, I check Facebook. Uh, When I'm uncertain, I Google. So if you can attach to an emotion, if you can attach to a negative feeling, that's the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product. Love it. So let's think about Salesforce. So from a B2B, you know, kind of context here, what you're inputting into Salesforce, I mean, you're putting in data all the time, so it's kind of hooking you into it, right? Because it's hard to to get out, right? That's Yeah, right. So the investment is the data you put in, the communications you you have with people, the... uh, uh, the uh, you know updating of contact information of, of of lead information those are all forms of investment, 
the the uh, internal trigger, the emotion, is when a salesperson uh, is uncertain about what to do right now. Where do I go make money? Where? How do I meet my quota? That is something that is on a salesperson's mind, a good salesperson's mind, every single minute. So every time they feel that emotional pain of what am I supposed to be doing right now to meet quota, I go to Salesforce. I go to Salesforce. I go to Salesforce. That's where I go to tell me what do I do right now to make money. And then when I go there, the simple action of opening the service, the variable reward is telling me what to do next, right? What's the next thing I can do to, to profit in my business, to the next lead I should contact, whatever the case may be. You know, Salesforce does a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And then the investment, as we just talked about, is putting in the information, making the product better and better and better the more I use it. One thing that you talk about is the habit zone. Can you describe what that is exactly? So the, the habit zone refers to the kind of products that can even become habits in the first place. You know, about 50% of the companies that I see, I, I do a lot of angel investing and I, I put my money where my mouth is. My investment thesis is to invest in habit-forming products that build healthy habits in people. The number one reason I will ding a company and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to invest in you or I won't work with a company in my consulting practice is if they don't meet this criteria of being in the habit zone. And the habit zone requires a frequent behavior. The number one criteria that you have to have in order to build a habit-forming product is that the product has to be used with sufficient frequency. Uh, Larry Page, the, the, the CEO of Alphabet, you know, formerly Google, calls it the toothbrush test, that he only wants to work on products that people use as frequently as a toothbrush. I'm not quite that rigid, <laughs> uh, even though if you think about many of the products I talked about earlier, like Snapchat and Facebook and email and your iPhone, I mean, these are things that you use many times a day, right? Multiple times a day. So of course they have a very high habit forming potential. But, but to me, the research that I've done, what I found is that products that are not used within a week's time or less, they won't become habits. You, you can just forget it. Uh, it's very, very hard. So what that means is that you have got to figure out how the key behavior, the key thing that you want people to do, go to your website, open the app, listen to something, watch something, uh, interact with something. That has to happen within a week's time or less or it's never going to become something that's internally triggered, that, that, that the person prompts themselves to action, that means you're going to have to buy ads and send emails forever. Right. And, and to get there, I mean, to figure out those, those kind of triggers, I'm assuming, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you're just looking at the engagement metrics and to figure out the best course of action from there, or is there something else? To, to do what now? I missed the first part. Yeah. So I'm asking this so in the context of iterating and figuring out if a product is, you're talking about the one week cycle, right? So how do you, right. my question is, how do you figure out, you know, how do you optimize to get to that one week cycle where people are using it every week? Well, we'll first start with common sense, right? There's some products that you just won't use frequently enough, like insurance, right? Uh, you buy insurance for your car, for your home, you, you, you buy it once and you're not going to use it again. The problem there is not engagement. An insurance company doesn't need customers to be engaged for their business model to succeed. They need, they need onboarding, right? They need you to buy once and then uh, make it hard to cancel. <laughs> and that's how they're going right. to keep you for life. You know, that's a great example because now the problem with those type of businesses that are not habit forming because they're not used frequently is then some other jerk company comes along and says, save 15% with a 15-minute phone call. And guess what? Customers switch <laughs> to save a buck because they don't use you frequently to care about you, to, to make it a habit, to make it something that they've invested a lot of time and effort and, and love, frankly, into. And they'll switch on a dime based on, on criteria like price or an ad that shows a, a, a duck, like an Aflac duck or, or the Geico lizard, right? Like That's enough to convince them. Whereas a product that you use frequently enough to form a habit around, that becomes something that's very hard to switch, right? I don't, 
I don't check and see if Bing is any better than Google day to day. No, I, I just Google it out of habit. I don't even give the competition a chance because I have this habit. Right. And, you know, this is interesting. I actually watched a video of you saying that you invested in something uh, or you're using something called Pana. Is that right? Right. Right. Okay. So how often do you, I mean, can you talk about what that is exactly? And then, you know, how often you use this thing? Yeah. So Pana is an app for travel and I hate the travel space when it comes from a habit forming perspective. In general, I really don't like that space. And the reason is, of course, uh, I get tons of company pitches telling me, oh, we have this new city guide that when you go to Paris, we're going to tell you everything about Paris. And that's great, except for the fact that the average person goes to Paris maybe once in their lifetime if they're lucky, right? <laughs> it's just not frequent enough. And so generally, I really don't like those apps from a habit-forming perspective. And they all have the same problem. Uh, they rely on Google's habit. Right, people will Google and uh, will Google uh, fun things to do in Paris, and then these companies are just hoping and praying that they'll be in the top search results. So they're they're really relying on Google's habit. However, there is one company that I found that I have invested in called Pana, which is a uh, uses this con- conversational interface to handle travel planning. Now, what they did, I, you know, when I first saw this company, I gave them the same advice I've just told you here: of if it's not frequent, you're never going to form a habit. But they don't cater to people who travel once a year or even once a month. They cater to people who travel every week, like me, right? So I'm touching something with travel. If I'm I'm not on a plane, I'm doing something related to travel every single week, sometimes every single day. Uh, And so that's where Pana comes in. So they only want a customer segment that uses this product a lot, even though it's a travel product. Uh, they, they, they are only going after a certain segment that is very high frequency. Love it. Okay, great. And so I want to back up a second. I, I think there's, there's one thing that you call the, we'll call it a framework. We'll, we'll say, uh, the gem framework. So what is that? Yeah. So, uh, gem stands for growth, engagement, and monetization. And these are the three pillars of every successful new product, uh, that engagement, everything I just ta- told you about when it comes to customer habits, how to bring people back. That's only one of three things that are necessary but not sufficient. You know, if you have, uh, if you follow what I tell you in Hooked, you buy the book and you you read every word and you you follow it to a T and you build your hook model and you you are able to habituate customers, but you only have ten of them, you got a problem, right? You, and you, if you can't figure out how to make money off of those people, then you really got a problem. You're not going to stay solvent. So. Engagement on its own is absolutely necessary, but it's not sufficient. You also have to have growth, right? How do you find customers? And you also have to have a way to monetize those customers and make sure that your market is big enough to have a sustainable company. So every business needs these three things, growth, engagement, and monetization. Now, out of those three things, the area that tends to be most neglected is engagement, especially here when it comes to in Silicon Valley where I live around tech products. Everybody's obsessed with growth, growth hacking, viral growth, viral coefficients. Everything's about growth, 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 growth. Growth is super important, but remember, growth without engagement is worthless. Those businesses that grow but can't retain users are called leaky buckets, and we see that all the time. We see these companies uh, that are, are you know figure out some amazing viral channel before other people have figured it out. Uh, they get into the several millions of users. VCs pumping money, the money hits the bank, and as soon as that money has cleared the bank account, what do you know? The users leave. <laughs> that yeah, always right. happens. And the reason that happens is because the company hasn't figured out how to retain those users, how to keep them coming back because their hook is broken. So growth on its own is not enough. We also have to figure out how to engage users, how to keep them coming back. That's where habits help. 
and we have to figure out, of course, a way to monetize them. So when I invest in a company, I, I, it's almost you never find all three. Uh, if you have all three, that that's a verified you know business. That that that's it. by that point, it's too late to invest in a company at that stage, uh, or to start a company. Of course, at that stage, you're never going to hit all three. But what I look for is two out of the three in place with a plan for the third. Let's use the Snapchat IPO as an example right now. And you know, obviously, you know, Facebook copying everything has kind of slowed their growth down, and they they mm-hmm. talked about it in their. Um, you know, in their filing. So, you know, they had growth before they had that kind of lockdown, but, you know, engagement and monetization sounds like they have that, but growth has slowed down quite a bit. And, you know, they're seeing, you know, you know, road, road bumps, um, you know, in, in the coming years. So what are your thoughts around yeah. that? Um, it, does, does your, does your show have an explicit rating? And ex- no, I mean, you can say whatever <laughs> I can say whatever. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you fuck with Facebook. Yep. Um, that I think Facebook I don't think many people understand the power of habits better than Mark Zuckerberg. He gets it. Every time people bet against Facebook, they're proven wrong because this man, not only does he understand the technical side of his business, right? He was a computer science major in college and he, you know, he's very smart on the, on the, on the engineering side, but you know, people don't remember the fact that, that Mark Zuckerberg's other major before he dropped out of Harvard was psychology. He majored in computer science and psychology. He knows what makes people tick and what makes them click better than the customers understand themselves. The fact that he is willing to pony up whatever it takes to protect his customer habit shows how he understands what's at stake. I mean, the fact that he paid, I remember when, when Zuckerberg paid a billion dollars for Instagram, we couldn't stop laughing at the, in, in Silicon Valley. We just thought that was the most ridiculous price Anybody could pay for this stupid, you know, photo app uh, that 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 would fade away soon. I mean, a billion dollars—it was ridiculous, right? Well, today, if you separated Instagram from Facebook, it's not worth a billion dollars anymore. A Wall Street bank just estimated it's worth thirty-five billion dollars. So, you know, who had the last laugh there? He knew exactly what he was doing. He understood what the keystone habit of his product is. Same with WhatsApp, right? He ponied up $22 billion, also great acquisition, even though everybody thought that was nutso. Uh, he tried to buy Snapchat for $3 billion, and he, he got rebuffed. They wouldn't sell. And I think, I think that company really understands uh, the importance of maintaining customer habits. So I think Snapchat without Facebook would be a, a, an interesting bet. Snapchat with Facebook is uh, – is, is very scary <laughs> because, because I, I, what I worry about is, you know, the, the three parts of growth engagement monetization, um, when it comes to monetization, part of monetization is market potential. And I wonder if they will have the flexibility to grow into a, a, a new market the way Facebook did, right? Facebook started on one college dorm room, either one college uh, dorm, what do you call it? Dorm building to the college campus of Harvard, to the Ivies, to the colleges, and then to, you know, Two billion people almost today, and and I think Snapchat in its current form, I'm I'm skeptical in that respect because uh, they're not reliant on the network effect the way that that Facebook is. I mean, it, it, you know, uh, the the in the in the filing for the IPO, they even said as much that we're not going to rely on a network effect. We're going to rely on constant innovation. Well, I don't think you go to toe to toe on innovation when it comes to competing with Facebook. Uh, it's it's got to be the network effect. It's got to be some kind of tie-in that makes the product better with use. And Snapchat says that's not important, and that makes me a little worried. Can you define network effects for the audience? Sure. Network effects um, are, uh, you know, if there's 10 concepts in business, you've got to understand it's the network effect. The network effect says that 
um, uh, the, the, the more people have access to a particular technology, the more valuable that technology becomes. So the classic example, uh, I, I, I'm not sure how young listeners are, but it, the classic example is the fax machine. Unfortunately, nobody uses the fax machine today anymore. But at the time, if you think about it, the first person to use a fax machine couldn't do diddly with it, right? Who are we going to send faxes to? But the more people that got fax machines, the more other people had to get fax machines, right? So it became something you had to have because now everybody has one and now it's super useful. I mean, my God, you could send you could send printouts to people all over the world and became very, very valuable. Everybody had to have one. Now, of course, nobody has one. Uh, very, very few people use them anymore. Uh, but that same concept of a network effect is directly translates into what makes social networks so powerful. The reason Facebook is as powerful as it is, it's not the technology anymore, right? You you, you could, uh, let, you know, take Twitter, for example, another network effect business. You could rewrite the code for Twitter in an afternoon. That's not the difficult part. The difficult part is you can't bring those people over from Facebook or from Twitter anymore because they're all there, right? Everybody's already at the party. The more people who use it, the more valuable it becomes. That's where my friends are. Now it's hard to leave. And so that, that network effect is what creates this kind of lock-in dynamic of uh, makes it very difficult for someone else to come in and, and, and copy your business because of that network effect, because everybody's already at the party. And how are you going to bring them over to this new business? Right. Just a few more questions from yeah. my end. So, you know, we talked a little bit about Panda and this ties into my next question. So what are some trends that you see? You know, what are you trying to invest in? You know, because you're, you're a habit, you're, you're a product master. What do you see? Um, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Um, what I think in terms of trends, a few things that I'm looking at, one is, you know, of course, I'm always on the hunt for healthy habits. I think there's lots and lots of ways that we can improve people's lives uh, by bringing healthy, fun habits that people want to do, but for sake of, of bad product design, uh, they have not done to date. So that's there's constantly opportunities to build healthy habits to help people save money, uh, be healthy, uh, interact with with people uh, that they love uh, who may may happen to be far away, be more productive at work. There's lots and lots of ways that we can build products to build healthy habits. I think what's what's also intriguing to me that I'm looking for more companies in this space has to do with um, this interface change around uh, the conversational UI. And the voice UI. So I think what we're, you know, we've 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 changed every time there's an interface change. So we went, when we went from desktop to laptop to mobile to wearable devices and now to voice devices like Amazon Alexa, Google Home, Cortana, uh, Siri, these voice-driven uh, devices. Every time that there's an interface change, there's an opportunity in the market. There's and and typically the incumbents can't keep up. So the habits that occur on one interface, uh, the, the, the big companies have a tough time switching those habits over to the new interface. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how companies, you know, which new companies can take advantage of this new voice interface and the conversational interface, just so for people who aren't familiar with it, I think that there's a huge opportunity out there to take complex uh, tasks like um, – uh, the classic example is is dashboards. People hate dashboards. We put up with them, particularly in the enterprise space. We put up with them, but nobody likes them, right? There, there's no convention about how a dashboard should look. Every time you use a new piece of software, you've got to figure out this new dashboard. Uh, there's dashboard fatigue all across the land. <laughs> but I think when it comes to this conversational interface, imagine if instead of a dashboard, I just tell you what I want, right? Like literally, I just type in with natural language, how were sales yesterday? Okay, boom, I type that in and I get an answer, uh, either from a bot, either from some kind of AI, or from some kind of human AI hybrid 
that's working on the other end of the line that's getting answers fed to him kind of like uh, Watson. If you remember on Jeopardy when, when the IBM Watson beat, uh, beat the humans on Jeopardy, well, the way that Watson does that is by comparing the probability of an answer. And so that kind of technology, I think, is what we're going to see in the future where there will be a customer service rep who will receive the inquiry and say, with 99% probability, this is what the question is asking, uh, would you like the autofill response? So the, the throughput of someone on the other end goes up dramatically. They can answer many, many, many more questions per minute or per, you know, per segment of time um, when it's, it's computer-assisted. So I'm not all that excited about bots, per se. I think bots are way overhyped. I am very excited about the conversational UI and human-bot hybrids. Uh, that 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 make responding and interacting with these technologies much much easier. I mean, one really obvious example is why the hell do we have to call customer service lines anymore? There is no one my age or younger that I know that would prefer to call versus to text, right? Like, cancel my cable should be a text message, not a forty minute phone call. Totally, totally agree, and I, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talked about, I think there's another startup you talked about. Was it X.AI? Yeah, yeah. So that's a company that uh, I, I didn't invest in them. I didn't get into that round, unfortunately. I was a little late on that. But I, I, uh, uh, they do sponsor my, my own podcast, and that's a really cool company. They Basically, what they do is it's very simple. Um, so, you know, when you're booking a meeting with somebody, you play this ping pong game of going back and forth and back and forth comparing when you can meet. Uh, or some people, I think you did this actually, you're like, here's my calendar, book your own time which is okay, but like not quite there. Uh, instead, what I do is I CC uh, this bot, called, and this is 100% automated, called, uh, the company is x.ai, and my assistant's name is Amy, so I just copy Amy at x.ai, like, just like an email with a, to a real person. And Amy will coordinate uh, with that person if they have a, a, an Amy of their own, right? If they have one of this bot, then it's literally 30 seconds and the meeting is booked because you know the, the, the computers talk to each other <laughs> and book the meeting almost instantaneously. But if the person doesn't have it, then it works just like a conventional uh, virtual assistant, so to speak, like a real person, uh, an admin, so to, so to speak, that will take care, you know, ask them, hey, how about this time? How, here's when Nier's available. Uh, would that work for you? And, and I, the vast majority of the time, people can't tell it's, it's a bot. They think it's a human being. Love it. So, okay, so it sounds like uh, half of it is, you know, it's actually like computers working, and the other half is there's probably like a human being working behind the scenes. With with X.AI? Yes. No, with X.AI, it's 100% Oh, 100%. Bot. Okay, 100%. Yeah, unless unless something breaks, like unless you, you – so you, there's a help email, uh, and that's happened maybe twice. I've used them in a year and a half where you know there's some kind of recursive loop or something goes wrong. Uh, then you have to call human help. But 99% of the time, it's just 100% bot. So besides your book, what's one must-read book you'd recommend to everyone? Oh, there's so many good books out there. <laughs> this is a tough question. Um, first one that comes to mind. First one that comes to mind uh, was a book that I've been recommending for a while now, just because it's just, just such a fun read. Is the book *Sapiens* by uh, Yuval Harari? Uh, great, you read it? Yeah, yeah, really good book. I really enjoyed his writing style. Very fun read. Um, I read it about a year and a half ago, so I felt like I kind of discovered it <laughs> before Obama and uh, and Bill Gates recommended it. Um, obviously I did discover, but I just, I'm, I'm happy that I somehow found it early. And I think he has a great writing style. I just finished his, his other book, Homo Deus, which is uh, good, but not as, as good. I thought as, uh, as sapiens. Awesome. And, and speaking of books, I mean, you've written a bestseller, so this is a two prong question. First, how did you get it to bestseller level? And we'll go with that one first and I'll ask you my second one. How do you get to bestseller level? You, you sell a lot of books in a short period of time. Uh, that's the basic math. 
I don't know. You know, I, I have to say, I, I've been trying to work on book number two, and it's a lot harder because I'm thinking through it too much. Uh, when I wrote Hooked, I mean, I, I never set out to write a book. I, I, I blogged for about two and a half years. After about two and a half years, I had enough content on my blog that I thought, you know what, maybe I'll put this together into a, a little PDF and I'll give it out to free for folks. And, you know, maybe it'll be like 20, 30 pages. Well, it turned into 200 pages <laughs> once I compiled all these blog posts. And then I, I actually self-published. I, I didn't go to a traditional publisher at first. I literally, you know, I went to CreateSpace. On, it's an Amazon-owned company that you just plop in, you know, the, the, the Word doc and it spits out a book. And I put it on Amazon. And lo and behold, it started selling. And, and not only did it start selling, it started getting good reviews. And then a few months later, I got a call from a professional publisher uh, and, and book agents. And they started seeing these reviews, kind of like, you know, how you lean startup something. You want to see if, you know, people actually want it. And so they kind of de-risked the book in that they were seeing all these, you know, five-star reviews at the time. And so uh, that's when I got approached by a professional publisher and, and, and Random House picked up the book. And uh, that now, you know, they re-released it as this professionally published edition that you see today. Got it. So do you, I mean, did they, because I, I know one other guy, he sold like all the rights to the book. Did you sell all the rights to the book or did you like retain a piece of it? How did that work out? I sold most of the rights. So uh, the, the uh, English rights is what I sold to, uh, to Random House. Got it. Okay, great. And so what is the, the book, what has the book done for you so far? What has the book done for me? So, you know, the, there's not much that I do today that's really scalable. I mean, I, I, I don't have a, a business per se. Um, there's no, you know, there's no like sellable asset to what I do. I, I speak, I write, I, uh, I, I do some consulting, but you know, unfortunately if I get hit by a bus, there's, there's nothing that, that carries on after me except the book, because the book is a form of media that is quite scalable, right? The words have been put down and that can continue to uh, change people's minds, to help people build profitable companies. That's what's super satisfying is that, is that even, you know, if, if I'm not able to talk to all these entrepreneurs, all the books that have been sold, hopefully are helping them uh, do the work that I, I would like to do with them in person, but you know, I can't scale myself. Awesome. All right, Nir, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? Yeah, so my blog is Near and Far, and Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R, nearandfar.com. And my book is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and that's available wherever books are sold. All right, Nir, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week, and remember to take action and continue growing.